Today, I'm sitting down with the hosts of the new podcast, Some of My Best Friends Are. Khalil Gibran Muhammad is a Harvard historian and author of The Condemnation of Blackness. And in every episode, he sits down with his childhood best friend, award-winning journalist, Ben Austin. They talk about their interracial friendship, using pop culture and history to explore the absurdities and the intricacies of race and racism. And today on the show, we are talking about a little bit of everything, exploring what it looks like to talk openly and honestly about the hard stuff and about the good stuff, what makes us different, what makes us alike, and what are the things we can learn from each other along the way. This is my conversation with Khalil and Ben. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. What I'm really curious about is how you guys met. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Khalil, well, why don't you take it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so we met as freshmen in high school. We we grew up on what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We grew up on the south side of Chicago. I was working at a computer store that had just opened that year, um, more or less uh, back in like 1984. We started mm-hmm. high school in 1985. And uh, the store was mostly employed uh, teenagers, you know, it was by, a, by kids. it was a small business. And so I was, as I jokingly say, kind of the Doogie Hauser MD of, uh, of retail computing at that time, like putting computers together, selling them to people, showing them the miracle of word processing when they were still using typewriters. Anyway, Ben, um, Ben was hired because I'd broken my thumb and I couldn't label the floppy disks that we uh, used You're to sell kidding. to our customers. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Khalil was essentially my boss. That's how we, that was our first encounter. How yeah. cool. And so being friends for this long, did you, had you talked about the idea of collaborating on a podcast before? Like how did this creative process come to be? Yeah, we, so, you know, we've been f- close friends for 35 years, you know, so since that moment and in a lot of ways, our, our professional careers have also overlapped. We've shared a lot of interests. We, we both work on issues of race and injustice and inequality. Khalil's a historian. I'm a journalist. We, we trust each other so, so deeply that we, we can talk very openly about our work and sort of showing what you might think of like first drafts when you're afraid to show it to the rest of the world or like testing out an idea or if, you know, somebody sends you an email to share it and say, what do you think about this? And so we've been having conversations about what's come up in the world and about what's going on in our lives. You know, so in a way we've been doing this work without the recorders on. 
Mm-hmm. And yep. you know, now yep. now we have this, you know, we have producers who are like, oh, 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 oh save it for the tape. But, but like, <laughs> you know, in a way, we haven't been saving it for the tape for all this time, but we've been we've been talking this way. And what I mean like about these issues, so like, you know, if a big, you know, something like the George Floyd summer, which really transformed, uh, you know, America. And we're unpacking that together and we're experiencing it in different ways. And Khalil is giving talks and I'm doing writing. Um, and we're also seeing things locally. And at the same time, we, we actually talk to one another in a way that is also being modeled on the podcast. You know, in some ways, it's, it's maybe you could say it's very unfortunate that, that a, a white guy, I'm white, this is, uh, this is audio, so <laughs> Khalil is black, that, that we, could, we could talk so openly and, and intimately about, yeah. about our lives and all these things and without a lot of the other sort of baggage. And I think we model that. And maybe, you know, you know, also just, you know, two men who get to talk to one another with very caringly and, and, and jokingly um, in that way. Yeah, like you talking for too long right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you were supposed <laughs> to give me the signal. <laughs> no, yeah. I, well, it, it brings me to a good point because I I know the history of the work that you guys have done. But for listeners who are not familiar with you yet, uh, will you take a minute and just give people an overview of the work that you've done and why that brings you to the show that you've created? Yeah, so so I I teach for a living. I mean, I, I'm a Harvard professor. I haven't always been a Harvard professor, but uh, I teach at a policy school. So a lot of my um, day job is about helping people understand the past in a way that helps them be smarter about the decisions they're making today. And then the school I work in is the John F. Kennedy School of Government. Uh, all of our students, close to a thousand a year, come there with a very strong mission to be public leaders, to be public servants, to make a difference in the world. But you know, it is the case that uh, so many of these very smart adults—they're anywhere from twenty to fifty, depending on which program they're in—haven't uh, learned uh, the full story. Uh, so much of American history is sanitized in our education. And so my job, I take very seriously, and I think it's really important. And uh, I've grown into it having uh, started out at Indiana University as a kind of traditional history professor. I spent six years running one of Harlem's oldest, Harlem, New York City, one of its oldest cultural institutions, something called the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture as part of the New York Public Library. It's an archive and a museum and a community place for public engagement something that most places don't have and is truly original. Uh, And so having led that institution, I also saw up close how important it is for the public to be engaged in these important debates. And then finally, I'm an author. So I've written a book that really tells the story of how we talk about crime today, how we racialize crime, how we think about Black people in a very different way about things that happen in their communities and relationship to law enforcement and all these sorts of things. So it's, you know, it's a big, a big set of overlapping things that I do for a living that uh, brings us to this podcast. I just want to say, Khalil, I was timing you and I timed how long I spoke. No, whatever. <laughs> you you uh, talked for four, 47 yeah. seconds longer. No, not, not at all. <laughs> and, in fact, and in fact, I was much more efficient, fewer soaps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'll work backward. I'm currently working on a, a book about criminal justice, about parole boards and criminal justice reform. And it, it's so directly tied to the work that Khalil does that we sort of often talk about it. So my first book was about uh, 
this this public housing development in Chicago, Cabrini Green, and a, a history that is also a history of cities and about urban America. And I've also done a lot of writing for national magazines, and I'm often writing about Chicago, a city where we're both from and I deeply love and is also deeply troubled. So it's sort of to investigate it in all those ways. But I'm a generalist, too, as a journalist. So I love writing about all sorts of things, about other cities, about sports, about uh, entertainment. I was an editor at Harper's Magazine for a bunch of years. Uh, I was also a high school teacher before that. Um, but, but those same issues are, are what, what animate me about, about sort of grappling with the country in both its, like, its complicated history and its mythologies. And when you guys set out to do this podcast, coming from the lens of both of you are teachers and you have sort of gotten this information and then disseminated it and given it to your pupils in one way or another. How did that play into what you created in the show and the kind of content that you want to put out in the world in this way? Yeah. So the first thing uh, I'll take this, take lead on this one is go, I mean, go we take it. <laughs> we wanted the show to center around our conversation rather than around interviews. Because as you know, so so much of podcasting is about bringing smart people you know, to other people, to their attention. And uh, we didn't frankly wanna compete in that space because if we were gonna do this together, we thought we make this show charming would be to sort of center our stories as the kind of set piece for these bigger conversations. And so we obviously draw upon the amazing ideas and the journalism and scholarship of other people but we tend to summarize and tell why that work is important. Uh, and occasionally we bring in an amazing guest to kind of flesh out something that we're still working through. But we wanted the show to have the kind of energy of a conversation that you didn't quite know where it was gonna go at all times. And you could hear disagreement without it being disagreeable and that we weren't performing you know, allyship or some kind of you know, expression of authenticity because the relationship is 35 years going. We don't have to yeah. perform. It just is what it is. And, yeah. and we get, you know, instead of teaching, I think a lot of times we are discovering things actually while we're recording and, yep. you know, that we're, we're working through ideas and we're kind of amazed by them at the same time. And, and yeah. sometimes we have different takes on them, but we sort of get to come to a place. We had a first episode about about interracial buddy films, which is, you know, a, a sort of playful way to think about this interracial buddy podcast too. And these are movies that we grew up on. And they, in a way, we were seeing a kind of representation, but they're also really problematic films. And we're talking about them and we're excited to talk. And we're also, we're like pushing each other to figure it out as we go along. And of course we have different perspectives. It's very different for Khalil as, as a black man to see some of this representation as it is for me. And so we're able to sort of like ask those questions while we're, while we're on tape. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now, 
it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. You said something too that sparked for me, Khalil, the idea of performative allyship. My friend Phoebe has a book coming out next week, and that's a big part of the conversation of her most recent work. For people who are not familiar with that, will you unpack, Mm. Ben, you can take a stab at this too, but sort of what that feels like and what that looks like, especially with social media. And uh, my best friend just wrote about this. My best friend is a black woman, and she just wrote about this a couple weeks ago. She said, I worry that people care more about not appearing racist than whether or not they actually are. So they're working so hard to make sure that everybody who follows them thinks that they're woke and checking a box and doing what they need to do, but they actually are not doing anything personally to make that real. So um, I would love to have a conversation about Mm. how this shows up in media. Yeah, you you're the white guy not performing yeah. allyship. This is your yeah. question. I mean, I, I keep it so real that it's hard for me to even know, recognize what's fake. You know, like I can't even, you know, but I guess, I guess there is some benefit to fake it till you make it. <laughs> you know, that's better than even like, you know, performing the other side. That's um, true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, if you, what you said is, you know, post-George Floyd, that's a lot of the conversation and a lot of the critique that, that so on one hand, this was sort of we're all like reckoning with something that is so in our face that that it made a lot of people have to deal with America in a different way. That we watched a lynching, you know, on a live lynching, and we all had to see what it meant. And this is, you know, the 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 depth of the injustice and the two-tiered society is there in our face. And so on one hand, you have people who who are have a kind of backlash to that, you know, that that they're not performing allyship. They're actually saying, you know, enough of this, I don't want to feel like I'm being replaced or that I, uh, I don't want to feel guilty or I don't want to feel blamed. So I don't want to even mess with this. And I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, not have, you know, teachers in my kids' classroom teach the 1619 project or the critical race theory. So we're not even talking about those folks. We're talking about people who then go through some of the motions who, who, who maybe read or bought a copy of white fragility and, and, and are then like, you know, the, the other side of change, which is, you know, we, we had a long conversation about this, Khalil and I, about, about, you know, structural change is, you know, the kind of changes that are necessary are really, really deep and profound. And so they, they challenge our sense of the order in a, in a way that's real. Like they, they do demand more of us, you know, and sort of the, I'll stop there. So you could. Yeah. Well, I'll just add, I mean, so I direct something at, at work called the Institutional Anti-Racism and Accountability Project, and that's a mouthful, but... Yeah, you, you need to come our, up with a better name, man. You need to <laughs> no, look, we, like, call it, we call it the IRA Project. So, yeah, it's got to have something like cool. It's, it's, it's like the like, Manhattan Project, you know, yeah. like uh, developing nuclear weapons. We're developing nuclear yeah. weapons to end racism. I wanted to offer this perspective on performative allyship. So our work is is focused on the gap between the performance of racial solidarity uh, through statements and the affirmation of diversity and racial equity by companies 
uh, in the private sector. You know, we stand uh, with the black community. We believe black lives matter. Uh, and yet they haven't changed one thing about how their businesses operate in black communities. Uh, they haven't changed uh, anything about the fact that their senior leadership is, uh, you know, either all white or um, very little representation from uh, people of color or the boards. And that's another kind of performative allyship that is very important to Ben and me to, to, to wrestle with on this show uh, so that people can really see the difference between, you know, I have a black friend, right? Which is the conceit of the show. That's performative allyship too, right? I grew up with black people. I have a black friend. Um, we've heard that. Some of my of best reference. friends are. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Uh, and you could fill in the blank. It doesn't even have to be white, black. It can be, you know, black, Latinx. It could be all of it. Right. So we want we want people to understand that while relationships and proximity are important to um, to building community, to breaking down stereotypes, to having the capacity uh, to grow and evolve it's often not enough because then you have to make a choice about how to live in the world together. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting when you brought up companies there, you know, I think of there's, there's a danger where a company that said we already did something and we're not going to do any more, but there's also a way that there might be a kind of toehold where you're able to sort of, you know, from that wedge create more. And I think, of, I think of you going into, you went into a, a credit card company recently to give a talk and I know that we, we talked about this on a show, Rachel, recently, that Khalil are, are do, and I are doing a show about, about teaching history. You know, so they asked Khalil like this kind of question, like, what should we do? And he, he said, you know, you really have to look at, at who is able to get uh, loans and, and whose credit scores are good and why. And then sort of like this sense of like, there's actually a long history to this. Like you can't just start from, from, from zero and say there's a, a level playing field. And that's, that's a really interesting challenge to their business model. You know, that to say like, you actually have to rate people possibly differently in order to support them. And that's just like, that, that, that's substantive. And, and what we would say is like, you know, structural. Do you feel, this is maybe too heavy of a question to do, you know, 22 minutes into this conversation, but do you feel hopeful? I mean, either in journalism, historically, as friends, do you feel hopeful about how things are changing? Do you feel like it's not enough? Like as you look to 2022, how are you feeling? I tend not to, uh, I, I tend not to give the hope, the currency that it has in the kind of conversations that are difficult like this, because it, it's too easy to say one's hopeful as if our aspirations will get us to the promised mm -hmm. land. So to me, answering the question is less the issue than what I do with my time. Mm. So I'm doing a show and I get up and teach every day because I'm hopeful that that work makes a difference. <laughs> if, yeah. I, if I weren't invested in the possibility of a future that's different than our present, then I'd probably do different things that, you know, frankly, would be easier on me. Um, right. You know, there's... The other side often thinks like, oh, the, you know, the guy talking about race and racism, um, that's the popular thing to do. That's the easy thing to do. And I can oh, tell you, I work that. at an institution. It's the oldest institution in this country as a, a place of higher learning, Harvard. And, you know, we're still counting the black first and the women first and the uh, native 
population firsts at that university. And so, you know, the market is not saturated with people like me, contrary yeah. to popular myth. <laughs> yeah. You know, I would, I would, you know, we've, we've had that kind of discussion before about like the, there's a the sort of dangers of hope. I will say that the America that we're sitting in, you know, sitting in this country a year ago and just having this, this, the deeper sort of existential fears of, of destruction of democracy, of, of an embracing, you know, a, a sort of counter narrative. Now, now, much of that has not disappeared with Donald Trump not being president anymore, but, you know, the president as, as an actual token, as a figure, as a, a position of power, that, that at least is, is, a, is a better position than we were one year ago today. Man, that's better. so real. And yeah. honestly, Ben, thank you for the reminder. I, I hate to sound like an idiot right now, but I feel like I just tried to pretend that that was all a very bad dream. And I, it's hard to imagine that, yeah, a year ago, every day, we were like, well, what insane thing happened today? That So at least there's that. At least we yeah. but you know what? that you, place. Not to, not to pour a... A no, hot no. can of grease all over this conversation, <laughs> but <laughs> but you know, a lot of what Trump tried to do as president that he couldn't do because he was limited by it because the powers of the presidency don't necessarily control what states do has been picked up by states. You know, we've got states passing voter suppression laws, anti-protest yep. laws. Now they're banning in at least eleven states some version of teaching about race and racism. Things that the president couldn't actually do, baby Trumps are actually doing at the state level. And so yeah, in some yeah. ways, what he represents has metastasized in our political arena that may, in the end, be more damaging uh, than right. his four years in office. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle, and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. 
Guys, no two listeners of the show are exactly alike, which means that no two vacations you take are going to be exactly alike either. And if you're looking for a place that will serve all of you, Texas has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities that allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. I love Texas so much, I moved my family there for five years. Because here's the deal, Texas has it all. Are you a beach person? We got you. If you love a rugged vacation, not my jam, but there's plenty of campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. My favorite part about Texas? The food. It is the thing I miss the absolute most. Whether you love barbecue or Tex-Mex or just want to be in cities that take their food very seriously. You can enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Visit TravelTexas.com slash get your own to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash get your own. This is maybe a controversial way to look at this, but, um, and maybe this is the version of me that is always trying to reach for some sort of meaning in that I, I have wondered for a long time if we needed to be faced with how fucked up things really were. Right. So like, no, uh, I didn't, I was going to say nobody, but that's ridiculous. I didn't think there was a world where Donald Trump could be the president of the United States. And I remember when he was running that I lived in LA at the time, we were all just like, this is wild. And you're so sort of covered up by living in a certain city and a bubble that makes you think that that's how the world is. And then it just kept getting worse and worse. And then everything exploded. And not that I would ever want the horrific things that have happened to have happened, but we needed a mirror. There need like this stuff was yeah. going on, and so many people, myself included, there are parts of it that I had no concept, and that we still don't know how bad or how fucked up it is, or what's really going on, or how much people would take racism and run with it, and you know, just all of the things that happened during that presidency. Is there any sort of like tipping point in that like we needed to see the gross, like take the mask off and see what's actually there? Yeah, I mean, I was I was definitely hardened after the George Floyd protests and the number of people who, who came out and were vocal, the diversity of people. And that, you know, we grew up, Khalil and I grew up in the 1980s that felt like we were amidst a kind of political backlash and a kind of political vacuum, like we were, you know, well after civil rights and people were kind of worn out and we sort of, you know, we're in this Reagan era. And so to see all these young people energized and taking action. Now, what happens with that? I'm not sure, but like that these kinds of conversations are happening and, and that there is there are the there is sort of reach in these different places. And even if you said like if some of it is performative, that was forced upon people even to 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 do those performances. Like they're 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 at least sort of something is seeping in, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Just to answer your question very directly, uh, yeah, I think the, I mean, to the extent that we could call it a silver lining, seeing our nakedness as a nation in the wake of Donald Trump's election is another moment 
uh, for us to choose to be a different country. And I also, I mean, I also understand uh, as you were talking, Ben, I was thinking about like even the even the parts of it that I didn't see or that some of us didn't see, even that there's an awareness of the privilege of not knowing yeah. how bad it really was. And then also some sort of level of fear of what's there that we can't see or how fast things can flip in the wrong direction or, or just even like the fear. I remember that whatever day it was where it was like, finally, you know, Biden had, mm. it was like confirmed he was elected we're just sobbing, like being at home by myself, just sobbing of like, because there was a minute where we didn't know. Right. Yeah, no. And I mean, that, that and, and it, like yeah. having some sort of faith restored freaking humanity um, is, I don't know. It's been, I mean, you guys are historians. So, or at least Khalil and Ben, yeah. you've done. Yeah, Ben's a, Ben's a fake that. historian. That's, that's right? what they call like journalists it. who write history, fake historians. Is there sort of a thought of like, are cycles like this that we're sort of experiencing as a nation right now, is it something cyclical? Is it something that there are examples of it happening before and then it cycles out? Or what do you guys see when you look at the world we live in right now or the country we live in right now and how that compares to historically where we've been in the past? Yeah, I mean, you know, a big part of our podcast is talking about our our youth growing up in the 1980s. And I think I think that's a really relevant and you know telling example of sort of these cycles, you know that that we we grew up in a moment that is sort of squashing the gains of civil rights and and that was pushing the country in a direction in which we you know we continue to live in, but but it was these 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 movements caused a, a backlash. Yeah. And, and let me let me just put a little bit of fine grain um, Bring it. commentary on that. So, you know, we're born in uh, Ben's born in 70. I'm born in 72. I'm born in 71, man. Oh, I thought you were older. You look older. <laughs> but anyway, so by the mid 1980s, you know, we the Gen X population. Much of the much of the, the great society programs uh, that came along with the civil rights uh, policies of, you know, ending segregation, voting rights was being systematically dismantled. You know, the very programs that were actually helping to reduce poverty at historically low levels, which was largely rhetorically focused on 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 black people and Mexican Americans, but also benefited low income white people. Yeah. Reagan basically said, you know, was creating dependency and criminality and did everything he could and very successfully to roll back much of that infrastructure, that kind of economic uh, justice agenda that had come out of Lyndon Baines Johnson's administration. And on top of that, the first uh, lawsuits, successful lawsuits to limit the uh, effectiveness of affirmative action began in 1978. You know, so I'm six years old. So think about this, like, (laughs) <laughs> we're the first generation born after the civil rights movement. And by the time I'm six, white people are calling affirmative action reverse racism. Mm. 13 years after the Voting Rights Act, white people are calling affirmative action reverse racism. And so then by the mid 1980s, we've got Republicans and eventually Democrats from Reagan to Clinton uh, fighting over who's going to be more tough on crime and then building the largest. Uh, prison system the world's ever known 
which then gradually becomes overwhelmingly black and brown overnight. So all that happened in the course of our lifetimes, in yeah, the course yeah, of we're, our childhoods. We're, we're, we feel like we're the mass incarceration generation, you know, that, that we, we live through this. We're like, we're like the frog in the boiling water, you know, doesn't, yeah. the water heats up slowly. And so, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I we think back to these moments a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I brought this up before, Khalil, but like there's this book by Eddie Glaude, a Princeton uh, religious scholar and philosopher, and it's about James Baldwin and it's called Begin Again. And he really is thinking about his own work as a Baldwin scholar and also thinking about Baldwin in the 1980s and thinking about Baldwin grappling with every, his whole life's work coming to this moment where everything has been dismantled. All of his heroes are dead. They've been either murdered or they've died. And, uh, and here he is like wrestling with an America that doesn't look like anything that he was sort of been, been working towards and writing about and, and speaking about his whole career. And, and Glaude also sort of is sitting in this moment, you know, this is before Trump loses the election, as a scholar looking back, thinking about the moment he's in about Donald Trump. And it really is a powerful juxtaposition of, of our present and, and the 1980s. Yeah. Is, it, is it historically, you know, one step forward and two steps back or that it, the pendulum swings back in the other direction? I know I'm like, guys, what yeah, is yeah, the answer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I wrote this, uh, this, this essay a couple of years ago, right, right after Donald Trump was elected in 2017. And uh, the argument I made was essentially that it's because we don't actually teach our history in the way that it happened, or certainly not as close to accurate. History is always a debatable, right? Uh, but the extent to which we actually erase and or whitewash our history is a, is a matter of empirical fact. It's not, a, you know. And so what I was basically saying in this piece uh, was that you could predict with reasonable accuracy backlash movements that happen about every 50 years. So there's the Civil War. And then by about 1915, there's another backlash a moment that is really a culmination of uh, Black people starting to leave the South. And there's a series of uh, racist attacks on Black communities in Chicago, Philadelphia, D.C., St. Louis. Uh, dozens and dozens of them happen in that 50-year period after the Civil War. It's also another moment when Confederate monuments are being put up all over the country. Fast forward another 50 years, you've got um, the civil rights movement reacting to that backlash, culminating in the successful moment and within weeks of, say, the Voting Rights Act passed, uh, you've got counties in the South filing lawsuits against the new Voting Rights Act. Uh, the same lawsuits that ultimately would win 50 years later in the overturning of the Voting Rights Act in the Shelby versus Holder decision. So 50-year increments is a, is a decent way to think about change. And so here we are, we've just experienced uh, this transition from Obama to Donald Trump. And, you know, will we disrupt this cycle and we spend the next four decades uh, dealing with the damage done by the Trump administration? Or will we set ourselves on a path uh, to a new beginning, uh, mm -hmm. to a moment to, quote unquote, begin again? And I think that doesn't depend on who we elect in office, per se. It depends on our capacity to come to terms with this history that I've just described. To me, being healthy is really grounded in nutrition. Honestly, what I eat and what my kids eat is super important to how we live our lives. 
It's why I love a company like Thrive Market because Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So when I go online and I use their on-site filters, I can figure out exactly my lifestyle needs and trust that what I'm getting from Thrive Market is what I want to take into my body. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. You can join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash rach for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash rach thrivemarket.com slash rach this episode is brought to you by progressive where drivers who save by switching save nearly 750 dollars on average plus auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I was tripping out when you were talking because I just did a podcast yesterday, a solo episode where I was talking about, um, deeply spiritual and very much a hippie. So just bear with me for a second, guys, mm-hmm. that I feel like in life, and uh, this is just as a, as individual human beings, the universe keeps trying to teach us a lesson that we're meant to learn as me as Rachel, you as Ben, you as Khalil, this is what I believe. And that if you don't get it, You'll just keep repeating that cycle again and again and again. Like if you don't get it in your 20s, someone's going to show up and help you try and get that in your 30s or your 40s. You'll keep making the same mistake by being with the wrong partner. You'll keep you know, putting yourself into harm's way or not holding boundaries or whatever it looks like to you. But there's a lesson you are meant to learn to grow and evolve. And as you were talking, I was like, that it's exactly what you just said, like I never have thought of it that way. And I'm going to take this out of our conversation today, Khalil. So I just really want to acknowledge this for a second because we're never taught actually what happened because we actually are not looking at the real history. We're doomed to repeat it again and again and again, because we're not, there's no mirror. Dang. That's a good word. I'm a That's a good daughter. word. I'm going to write that down somewhere in the journal, man. That's a good word. I love Thank that. Thank you for that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really good perspective on I just arming ourselves. And I don't think, obviously, we're having this conversation too, but I think of, you know, I live in Texas, and I'm sure you guys are aware of what's happened here and Ooh. sort of sneaking right that's, what, that's what, hard living that's hard yeah, living Rachel. Hard living. <laughs> she's living in austin she's living in austin, live in austin but... just so we're clear it's a little tiny bubble it's the, yeah. <laughs> what is it the blueberry and the tomato soup that's austin texas <laughs> but 
you know, seeing what happened here and um, abortion laws and how those things are being affected and sort of sneaking in. And it's it's a bigger conversation about what are the ways that oppression has been, you know, like wheedled into systems and some ways overtly and then some ways when you're not looking. And again, because we think it can't happen because we're not paying attention to history, it's just going to keep repeating itself. So if people are listening to this beyond listening to your podcast, which everyone wants to do because they all want to be friends with you now, what are some of the ways that you I love, I'm a huge history nerd. So I love the idea of arming yourself with history. Um, But what are some of the ways that you guys suggest just freaking being aware of what has happened, what continues to happen, actions you can take, just any of it from a journalist perspective, from a professor's perspective, what's the advice you give? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think it is so important to get multiple perspectives. I mean, I, I, I fear all the people who only get their news from, say, from from certain right wing, well, right wing sources that are even telling them that there is no danger about the coronavirus. I mean, right. I, I I'm angry at a lot of those people for for being ignorant and unaware of the of the dangers. But there's also something so scary that they if they to, to truly have imbibed the, these ideas. And so the sense of of you know there's work to do about being an informed citizen. And and we can't be passive. We when we have to we have to think about that work. Like we have to think about our collective responsibility. We aren't just all individuals. Like I mean, you talk about the lessons we should see. Nothing should have taught us more that than these last eighteen months. And yet, it's still a lesson that we haven't we we we, we haven't sort of you know indoct- it's not something that we feel deeply or we're aware of like it's still we're still broken in these ways yeah and i i think people just need to be vulnerable to um learning things that uh that they just didn't learn before because there is something a little embarrassing about not knowing um enough of our history to feel competent to even have a well argued position on it uh, I meet adult students every single year. Uh, I teach uh, 250 in our core program now. And a lot of these students, it's Harvard, you know, they have been well-educated, oftentimes in private schools. And it's often embarrassing to them when they encounter the material in the course because they're like, how is it possible? How is it possible that I didn't learn this? And so they have this opportunity because they happen to be in school, but a lot of adults don't make time for it. Uh, It's kind of catch as catch can, you know, some listeners of this show will be like, man, that was really powerful. You know, I might, I might look at the New York times bestseller list right now and see what titles are on there that might extend this conversation. You know, we are in a, in a way, in a golden age of content production. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, so a, a, a distribution, uh, company like Netflix is putting out so much documentary content that sometimes I feel like I might be put out of business, literally. Like my students might just show up one day and be like, you haven't taught us anything we didn't already learn on Netflix. Right. And that, that would be a good thing, but people still have to make the choice, right? You still have to choose to enter into these spaces, into these learning opportunities, into these conversations. And I would say as the resident white guy in our relationship, that, that you also you know, get over the sense of guilt and shame and all these other things, you know, that, that this is our history, like whether we like it or not. Um, and to, to take a clear eyed look at it 
is, is, you know, it doesn't mean that you're a terrible person or that you're being attacked or that, you know, you should, you should feel shame. It is the, it's the story we have to wrestle with and it's a story we have to solve. And so you have to get past that. And that, that, I think part of that is thinking again, like if you're only thinking individually, of course you feel like everyone's talking about you, but we are part of this collective. And the, the notion of a, a, of a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy is really extraordinary and really, really, really difficult. And so if that's our project in this country, then it, it is going to be hard. And it's going to, and the past that we have is, is one of a, of a lot of failure. Uh, and and you're, we're allowed to look at that and we're still allowed to think that that, that project is worthy. That's another good word. <laughs> What's that Amy Winehouse song about relapse? Uh, how does the uh, the refrain? Rehab? Oh, yeah. it's rehab, rehab, right. Yeah. Yeah, because that to me is... A, is <laughs> Trying to make go to rehab, yeah. That's right. It's kind of oh, a metaphor. Oh, no. For this. no. <laughs> <laughs> a metaphor for this nation, right? It's like, and the people in it, like, oh my God, really? We have to do this again? I have a friend who yeah. uh, is starting a, a citizenship oh. uh, for for kids. It's called citizenship, and she told me that we invest like you know I think it was like seven cents on every dollar for for citizenship education, you know, and like STEM gets like forty cents or like seventy cents. And so this is not something. What it means to be part of this country is not something we're actually even teaching. You know, let alone the history, but just like the idea of what it means to vote, what it means to participate, what it means to be part of a, a collective. That's wild. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to stop asking questions because I'll talk y'all's ears off. If people are listening to this, they want to find your books, they want to listen to the podcast, will you guys give them all the details that they need to connect with you online and out in the world? Some of my best friends is available wherever you get podcasts. So, <laughs> you know, anywhere you look, it's there. Uh, it's put out by a great company called Pushkin, which we're really proud to be working with. Yeah. And so please listen and subscribe and, and tell us what you think. Uh, Khalil, why don't you tell about, yep, about how yep, to reach yep. you? Yep, yep. So you can, again, you can find our podcast on pushkin.fm. Uh, you can find Ben uh, on Twitter and you can find me. I'm at Khalil G. Muhammad. And uh, that might sound like it's difficult to spell, but uh, you'll find it if you start searching for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're both on Instagram. Um, I'm also, you know, you can find me at Harvard as as faculty by searching for my name. Um, my book's available on on Amazon. So is Ben's. My book's called The Condemnation of Blackness. Ben's is called High Risers. Guys, thank you so much for the no, time and the thank wisdom. You. I hope we get a chance to do it again. Yeah. Continue this conversation and good luck with the show. Yeah, yeah, Thank beautiful you. conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so, you so much, much, Rachel. Good luck time. with yours. The Rachel Hollis podcast is hosted by me, Rachel Hollis. Our show is edited by Andrew Weller with additional production support by Sterling Coates. Our executive producer is Cameron Berkman. The Rachel Hollis podcast is a 3% chance production.
It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.